Church and guests and everybody who is with us this morning, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Colossians. Colossians chapter 3. We've made it to chapter 3. And uh, yeah, it's just been a joy preaching through this book. If you're a guest with us, just want you to know this is what we do week after week as we open up God's Word. And uh, we like to preach through books of the Bible because uh, we want to see what God has to say in context. So we go verse by verse through books of the Bible. And uh, I've lost count on how many sermons this is in Colossians, but uh, it's been such a joy just to walk through this verse by verse. So we're going to be looking at Colossians 3, and we'll be in verses 1 to 4 this morning. And if you'd like a nice title for the sermon, The Christian Mindset. The Christian Mindset is our title this morning. So let me read from God's word for us, and then I'll pray and we'll jump right in. This is the word of the Lord. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for your word. Thank you, God, for speaking to us. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. Thank you, God, for preserving your word for us through the many copies and the faithful textual traditions that have ensured that your word and its truth has been passed down from generation to generation, has been preserved for us to know what Paul is saying, even this very morning under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So God, I pray that as we look at this text together, that you would speak to us because we know that you are God whose word does not go out and return void. Your word is that which gives life, even resurrection life. And so God, I pray that you would encourage the souls of those whom you have resurrected spiritually and that you might even resurrect some who are not yet resurrected spiritually this very morning. Lord, would you just work powerfully through your word? Teach us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in the early days of our marriage, Julie and I lived in Louisville, Kentucky, where I worked in retail while finishing up school. And during that period of time, Julie began her career as a nurse. And as a result of working as a nurse, I came to learn that there's something I didn't know of before. And that is something that you could call a nurse mindset. And that became especially obvious because we were in a community group at our church. And in that community group, there was another woman who was a nurse as well. And every time that those two would get together, I came to learn about what I'm going to call the nurse mindset. Julie and her friend could go on and on about nursing, swapping stories, swapping scenarios, thinking through things together, and they just enjoyed nerding out on all of the minute details of nursing. And I didn't understand anything that they were saying most of the time, just kind of sat there and 
listen. And the reason is because I do not have a nurse mindset. They have a nurse mindset that I simply do not share with them. And if you think that nurses are bad, trying to get, try to get, get in a room with a bunch of engineers and see how that goes for you. My uh, brother-in-law is a phenomenal engineer, and I once made, perhaps you could say, the mistake of taking a road trip with him that included crossing many bridges along the way. And as we crossed over all these different bridges, I learned about abatement and allowable bearing pressure and anchor span and who knows what else. I got to hear all the details about all these bridges. And the truth is, I just didn't understand what was going on. Of course, I happily listened, but I did not have an engineer mindset. Now, the point I'm making is that we understand that nurses often have a sort of shared mindset, and engineers often have a shared mindset, and lawyers often have a shared mindset, and technology developers have a shared mindset. And we could go on and on about all the different shared mindsets that exist in the world. Now, a mindset is really a set of beliefs that shape how we interpret the world. Really, a mindset is a worldview. It's a lens through which we interpret our own purpose, our values, our attitudes, our everything, really, if you talk about mindset in the most grand sense possible. And what we're going to see in our text this morning is that every Christian ought to be dominated by a Christian mindset. In other words, the Christian mindset ought to be the lens through which we understand every other sub-mindset that we might possess. If you're an engineer, then that mindset is subject to the greater Christian mindset that you hold if you are indeed in Christ. Maybe I could put it this way. There is a Christian way of thinking and believing that ought to affect every area of the Christian's life. A Christian mindset affects how we think and act in our relationships. It affects how we approach our work. It affects how we listen to the news. It affects how we might even perhaps even react to books that we find in the children's book section at our local library that make an outright assault on God's, uh, God's uh, purpose and gender and sexuality. A Christian mindset is a mindset that affects how we interact with our neighbors, with our coworkers, with our family members. It affects everything in our life. The way that we think about the world reaches into the depths of our souls and ought, as a Christian, with a Christian mindset, to leave no area untouched. The Christian mindset is an all-encompassing mindset. And in our text this morning, Paul shows us what the Christian mindset ought to be. He, he peels back the layers of the person and he shows us this is what ought to define you in the deepest sense of your being if you are indeed in Christ. You should have a Christian mindset. So in our four verses this morning, here's what we're going to see. First, we're going to see the origin of the Christian mindset. And then second, we'll see the heart of the Christian mindset. And then third, we'll see the focus of the Christian mindset. And finally, fourth, we'll see the surety of the Christian mindset. So let's jump in together this morning. First, we're going to look at the origin of the Christian mindset. Look with me at verse 1 here in Colossians chapter 3. Paul writes, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. 
We see the origin, or you might say the starting place of the Christian mindset in that first phrase there in the verse. If then you have been raised with Christ. Now, if you've been with us as we've been walking through the book of Colossians, you know that Paul has been teaching with this death and resurrection motif throughout the book. And in Colossians 2, verse 13, Paul reminded us that we were once dead in our sin before God made us alive together with Christ. In fact, the verse reads like this. Paul says, and you who were dead in your sins in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us of all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Friends, the Christian mindset that Paul is talking about here begins with what we ought to call the miracle of spiritual resurrection. And for the Apostle Paul, this spiritual resurrection isn't just a sort of hypothetical thing. It isn't a little bit of a psychological mind game whereby we call ourselves or will ourselves into some sort of different way of living. It's not a conversion that we ourselves perform. Paul believes that men and women are made up of what you could call body and soul or immaterial and material. And the immaterial part of us is just as real for Paul and for all of us as the material part of us. That immaterial part of us, what Paul has been getting across this whole time, is dead to the things of God before our spiritual resurrection. But what happens at the origin of our Christian life is we hear the message of the gospel and God turns the lights on. And we respond in faith and in a moment we die to the world and are resurrected to Christ. So God brings our souls out of the domain of death that characterizes the things of the world and transfers us into the kingdom of Jesus where we have life for the first time in our souls. This is a spiritual resurrection. And what we need to see here is that the language tells us you have been raised. That's incredible, friends. That's incredible because first off, this is an aorist passive verb. Now here's what that means. The aorist tense in the Greek is implying that this is something that has happened objectively in your past. You have already been raised. There's a spiritual resurrection that really happened. Something that was dead in you, the immaterial soul, the thing that was dead to God, has now been brought to life. You have new desires, new affections. You're a new creation in Christ. Something has fundamentally changed about the whole way that you see the world and what Paul is referring to here as your spiritual resurrection. You've already been raised. But then it's also the passive voice in the verb. And what does that tell us, my friends? How often do we in this church like to point out what we call the divine passives? The divine passives articulate the truth of the gospel to us. And here's what they tell us. They remind us that the gospel is not something that we do. Because the divine passage of scripture unmistakably indicate that the action is not on our part, but it's on God's. When it says you have been raised, it is 
very clearly not saying you raised yourself. The language is unmistakably clear. God does the action. This is where the Christian mindset begins. God resurrects you from the dead. He does something in your heart and in your soul and in your mind that causes you to be born again. He gives you new life where you did not have life before. And he gets all the glory for it. We didn't do this. We didn't choose it. We didn't will it. We didn't work out our own conversion. God resurrected us from the dead. He gets the glory. I, I recall hearing a story once of a Chinese Confucian scholar who came to Christ. And he, he used the parable when he was sharing about why he came to Christ of the pit to explain the differences that he found between Confucianism and similar religions and Christianity. And so he said that a man fell into a dark, slimy pit. And the man tried to climb out of that pit, but he couldn't climb out of it. And so Confucius came along. And he looked down into the pit and he had compassion on the man. But he simply said, poor man, if only he would have listened to me, he wouldn't have fallen into that pit. And then he went on his way. And next, Buddha comes along and he sees the man in the pit. He called him out. He said, come on out of that pit. And if you can just get yourself most of the way up here, I'll help you the rest of the way out, but the man was unable to get himself out of the pit, so Buddha moved along. Finally, Jesus Christ came, looked down, and saw the man in the pit. And he had compassion that compelled him to jump into that slimy, boggy pit. And he himself, according to his own strength, lifted the man out of the pit, raised him up, and carried him along with him. And so this Confucian scholar said, this is the difference between Christianity and every other world religion. They simply give instruction and a code of conduct, but Christianity alone has the power of a God who raises us up in our hopeless and helpless state by coming to rescue us himself. And that's why he came to Jesus. He came to understand his helplessness, the lost state of his soul. Not, not a person comes to Christ truly thinking that they did anything to add to the equation that enabled them to be saved. The Christian gospel is a recognition of the absolute hopelessness of man before a holy and righteous God because we are lost in our sin, dead in our sin. We need God to do a work of spiritual resurrection in us and that's what he does in the gospel. He sends his son to do all that was required that we could never do ourselves so that by mere faith in Jesus, realizing Jesus did it for me, God saves us, raises us with Christ. We then become dead to the world and alive to God. This passage that we're looking at today is really a turning point in the book of Colossians. Paul is about to turn to the practical matters of Christian living. He's about to show us what it looks like to live this new resurrected life. But what we need to see is that such Christian living is not the means by which we come to have life in God. Christian living is a response to the work that God has already done in us through the gospel. The way the scholars put this is to say the indicatives of the gospel always precede the imperatives of the gospel. 
Okay, right there in the text. If then you have been raised with Christ. That's the indicatives of the gospel. The indicatives just means these are the facts of the gospel. And the simple fact is that if you are a Christian, it's because God raised you to new life in Christ. You didn't do anything and you couldn't do anything to raise yourself. But then you do have imperatives in the gospel. If you have been raised with Christ, indicatives. Now, in response to the fact that you have been raised to this new life, seek the things that are above. That, friends, is an imperative. And an imperative is a command. So we're going to consider then the next truth in this text together. Secondly, the heart of the Christian mindset. The heart of the Christian mindset. So we saw the origin of the Christian mindset. It begins with God doing a work of resurrection in us. And now we turn to see the heart of the Christian mindset. Look at verse 1 again. Paul says, if then you've been raised with Christ, now focus here. Seek. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Seek, friends, is an imperative. Paul is commanding Christians who've been raised to new life in Christ to seek the things that are above. And who is above? Christ is. Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That word seek there is a beautiful and complex word. It has to do with action that is even taken from a human standpoint emotionally. Okay, it's a response that comes out of the depths of our hearts. So sometimes it's used negatively, even in the Bible, referring to angry actions of wicked men. People who seek things in their anger and in their hatred. Like when the Jewish leaders were seeking to arrest Jesus, this word seek is used. Their seeking was ruled by the emotion of anger. But, but other times the word is used in an emotionally positive sense. Like what Jesus says in Luke 12, 29 and following. Listen to this. Jesus says, and do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things. And your father knows that you need him. Instead, seek his kingdom. Seek his kingdom. And these things will be added to you. The word's also used in some different well-known parables that you'll likely recognize. Like the parable of the lost coin, for example, in Luke 15. In Luke 15, Jesus begins telling this parable, and this is what he says in verses 8 to 10. He says, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Okay, so, so the parable, of course, is te- teaches us about God who seeks us out for his own self-pleasure, for his own self-joy. He seeks us to bring us into his kingdom. And the picture is a familiar one, is it not? We understand this idea of seeking something of value, something lost, something that we will not stop until we have found it and finished the task of seeking what we need to find. Just this last week in the Scoggin home, there was a critically important homeschool curriculum book that went missing. And the thing was lost. And it threw the entire house 
into an emotional moment where everyone was told, stop and drop what you're doing and seek this book. Because without this book, the schooling process will not continue today. And so our hearts, you better believe, were most certainly engaged in seeking after this book. We were looking for it and we were not going to stop until we found the book. And, And that sort of heart engagement is involved in us seeking after a book that we don't even particularly love. I mean, imagine seeking after something, someone that you love. That's the heart of the Christian mindset, friends. Our hearts are engaged with God. And as a result of his resurrection work in us, we begin to seek him with a love, with a passion, with a desire for him. We have come to treasure him as he has revealed himself to us in the word. And now we want him. We want to know him. We want to trust him. We want to believe him. We want to dig into his word and find all of the glorious truth about him that we can manage to bring out. That's the heart of the Christian mindset. Give me more of my God's presence. Give me more of my God's word. I want nothing more than to know him and to make him known. That's the heart of the Christian mindset. Our hearts are engaged with God as a result of his resurrection work in us. And so now we diligently seek what is above. And Paul wants to make very clear what is above. Christ is. And how is Christ depicted in this passage? Paul says that he is seated at the right hand of God. You see that? What does that mean? Let me just tell you first what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that God literally has a right hand. This is a phrase that was used to indicate the position of highest honor and power. This is really a clear reference to Psalm 110, which is the most quoted psalm in all the New Testament. If you didn't know that, there's just a fun fact for you. So I want to ask you to turn with me. Get your Bibles moving a little bit this morning. Turn with me to Psalm chapter 110. And we're going to read this whole psalm together because Paul is making reference to it here in this verse. And we want to see what Paul is saying about Jesus here. Let's get into his Jewish mind a little bit. Psalm 110. A psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Until I make your enemies your footstool, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning to the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment upon the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Friends, Paul interprets this psalm, Psalm 110, to display the total victory of Jesus over all spiritual powers of darkness. And the connection that Paul is making here in Colossians is that Jesus is seated in a position where no other person could be seated, and that that is at the right hand of God. 
You may not know this, but in Jewish Old Testament scripture, the Jews would have understand, understood that in the heavenly realm, only God metaphorically was seated in the heavenly places. The only person that sat down in heaven, who sat down on the throne, so to speak, was God. Because to sit down was to interpret or to uh, display your authority over the other people. In fact, even in Jewish synagogues, it would be the teacher who was teaching the word who would sit down and everybody else would stand up. This was a sign of the one who has the authority, the one who has the power. So the angels in heaven are standing around the throne of God. God alone is seated in the heavens. And for Christ in a Jewish mind to be seated at the right hand of God indicates that Jesus shares in the perfect authority of God. Okay, this is the Christ who is unlike the rest of creation. This is the Christ of Colossians chapter 1, who is not a created being like all other created beings, but who is one with the Father, who has eternally existed, who is the eternal image of God. This is God, not just another man. He's God in flesh. And he's ruling over, Paul wants you to know, He's ruling over every spirit and every being in all creation with absolute power. That is who Paul wants us to seek. He wants to seek a knowledge of Christ, the Christ who is truly seated in heaven. Now, why is Paul taking this angle? Well, if you remember from last week, the false teaching that Paul is dealing with in Colossae is a variation of Judaism that's unique to that particular city and the surrounding region. And what the false teachers are teaching is they're telling the, the uh, Christians there that true spirituality is found in obedience to a set of commands. True, the truly spiritual people are the ones who do X, Y, Z, who do all these different things. And as you do these commands, it actually gives you access to angelic visitations and heavenly experiences. And really, if you remember that the experiences in particular were to be caught up into a heavenly temple, where if you were doing the good things on earth, you would be temple worthy and therefore could go into this heavenly spiritual temple and be considered one of the really spiritual people that has experiences with angels. And Paul is teaching that even if those angels appear to be deceptively good, they're actually evil and should not be tampered with. Instead, the Christian should realize that he doesn't need all these wild spiritual experiences with angels for spiritual fulfillment. Instead, the Christian should just set his heart on Christ, the Christ who has triumphed over those powers of darkness. Colossians 2.15. And so the Christian mindset, friends, doesn't clamor with sensational, religious, or personal, or spiritual experience to authenticate or validate our faith. Do you know what we do as true Christians? We keep our heart set on the exalted Christ who's seated in heaven, who's done everything necessary for our salvation so that we one day can return home to be with him. So I need to ask, church, what are you seeking for fulfillment? What, what is your heart set upon? You know, when you're in these moments where you're really struggling in your life, what is it that your heart yearns for? What, what is it that gives you comfort? What is it that gives you peace? What, what calms your soul? And if it's anything other than Christ, 
in the most ultimate and deepest sense, then you're not living with a Christian mindset. You've been resurrected by Christ who's seated in heaven right now. He is really there. He's really exercising absolute sovereign power over everything that's happening in creation. And so if you're worried about something, anything in your life, the call is to seek what is above. Don't seek fulfillment in worldly things. Seek Christ who is above. And seeking involves not only the heart, but also the mind. Which leads to the next truth in our text. Third, we see the focus of the Christian mindset. The focus. So we've seen the origin, we've seen the heart, and now we see the focus of the Christian mindset. Look with me at Colossians 3, verse 2. Paul writes, Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Here, Paul tells us to dwell on heaven and not to be so caught up and concerned with the things that are on earth. Okay, now remember, these false teachers want to focus the attention of these Christians on earthly rituals and practices that belong to the old world. They belong to an old way of living, an old Jewish way of living. They want people to be stuck in this mindset that tells them that you need to do the X, the Y, the Z, the A, the B, the C, whatever, the one, two, threes, whatever it is, you need to do these things in order to gain spiritual fulfillment. But Paul tells these Christians that they have all that they need in Christ. And the focus of the Christian should not be on what we must do to gain spiritual fulfillment or spiritual experiences, but instead to remember all that Christ has done and to continue in the belief that because of Christ, we're already filled with the fullness of God. I don't need anything outside of Jesus. He's all I need. So, so our focus must remain on Christ. That's the point Paul's making. The Christian mindset is not anchored to this world, which is passing away. It's not anchored to the old realm, the old way of living, the old world, which is doomed to destruction. It's anchored to Christ, who is in heaven. He's a brilliant theologian. One of my favorites, whom I even named one of my sons after, John Owen, once wrote this. We all profess that we are bound for heaven, immortality, and glory. But is there any evidence that we really desire to go there? If all our thoughts are consumed about the trifles of this world which we must leave behind, and we have only occasional thoughts of things above? Friends, we need to think about this this morning. What do you think about when you're free to think about whatever you please? Do your thoughts go towards things that are above or toward the things that are of this world which are just passing away? I think there's few questions that reveal the condition of our hearts more quickly than this one. What do you spend your time thinking about and how does that practically affect your life? Now, I'm going to continue calling us out here because we all need it, but there's, there's one study that found that the average person now spends 4.8 hours per day on their mobile phone. And then in addition to that 4.8 hours per day on their mobile phone, they spend another, on average, 3.1 hours a day watching TV. We live in what economists call an attention economy. 
which means that companies make money by keeping your attention on your technological devices. That's how they make money. They want to keep you as anchored to the things of this world as they can keep you. They don't want your mind set on heavenly things. They want you anchored to stuff, anchored to things in this world. Now, can you find things on your phones that will tell you of heavenly things? Yes, but let's be honest. How do we use our phones most often? I doubt that that 4.8 hours is filled up with watching sermons on YouTube for most of us. You know, how often do we spend our time getting caught up and just thinking about the next random thing that we should look up on our phone? How often do we meditate on the next thing that we want to buy or that next place that we want to go to? And we wonder why our souls feel so drained and apathetic towards the things of God. Friends, what are you setting your minds upon? Now, just also think of how this applies to our relationships, friends, to think on things above and not on things on this earth. Let's just take marriage as an example here. How does a marriage change when a couple is focused not on fulfillment in the things of this earth, but on the things that are above? Would your marriage look different if you understood fundamentally that your marriage is for the purpose of directing both you and your spouse toward the ultimate truth, which is heaven and Christ and where he is, and that your marriage and this earth and all this stuff is not eternal realities that we're supposed to hang on to and bank our whole hope on, but instead the purpose of marriage is to display Christ in the church as a husband and wife strive together to... to, uh, enter into their heavenly rest, to to fight together against sin. How would these heavenly realities affect the way that you interact with your spouse when perhaps they sin against you? You I, I can tell you, beloved, that if you were thinking heavenly about these sorts of things, you would see your marriage not as a mechanism for your personal or relational fulfillment, but as a tool that God uses for your sanctification as he continues a new creational work in you. And that means that when your spouse sins against you, you are eager and willing and ready to forgive because you remember the incredible forgiveness that you yourself have received in Christ. You're meditating on things above. Christ has forgiven me, a wretched sinner of all my sins. How can I hold anything against this other person who is coming to me confessing their sins? in humility and brokenness, of course I forgive you. You see how this changes? The way that we interact, even in our marriages, even when something cuts us deep, we can turn our attention to the things of heaven and we can realize God has been so gracious to me. I've got to extend that grace to someone else. And not only that, I need to proclaim the gospel to my spouse who feels like trash right now because they're trapped in their sin. I need to preach the truth to them. That's my call. I need to remind them Jesus came to suffer the penalty for your sin so that you are totally, fully, and completely forgiven. You need to tell your spouse, your sins were nailed to the cross. Trust in Christ. Cling to him. My relationship is not about my personal fulfillment. Ultimately, it's about walking with you and pointing you to these heavenly realities. Let's set our minds on the things above together and not on the things of this earth. And friends, this isn't just a word that is needed for married couples. We also need to remember this if you're in a season of singleness. 
In singleness, Christians have to set their minds on things above. It's not wrong to desire marriage, but for those who do, you need to remember that marriage is not going to provide the deep spiritual fulfillment that your soul desperately needs. That is only found in Christ. So, so how can you set your mind on Christ in your singleness? How can you ensure that you're meditating more on Christ than on your relational status? You fill your mind with thoughts of Christ and with thoughts of his love for you. And man, we could just meditate on this point for the rest of the sermon today, walk down the line and apply this in all sorts of appropriate ways. Having minds set on things above means that you don't cheat to get ahead at work. It means that you don't lie to get an edge, that you won't shrink back when you're called upon to speak the truth in love because your work is calling you to do something that you know that you as a Christian in good conscience just can't do. It also means that you're not going to be a jerk to a sinner who needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ to change their life just as much as it changed yours. You're going to have compassion and kindness and gentleness and patience and love. And you're going to go to them and proclaim the joy of the gospel, which is the only hope of their salvation. Why? Because that's the only hope they have. See, our hearts get flustered by the things of this world when we're setting our hope on those things. And, and something threatens them rather than having our minds fixed on Jesus who is above. That's when we get ourselves in trouble. So now then, how do, we, how do we set our minds on things above? Well, there's only one answer that a Jew like Paul would have given to that, my friends. And I think we can look at Isaiah 55, verses 6 to 11. You can turn there if you want, but I'm just going to read it out loud for us. This is how a Jew would have thought about seeking the Lord, seeking the things above. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So friends, we focus rightly with a Christian mindset, when we are deeply meditating on the word of God. God dwells with his people through his word. That's where his covenantal presence meets with us. It is in his word. It's his word that created and gave life to all being. It's his word that dwelled with Adam and Eve in the garden. It's his word that has dwelled with his people all throughout the history of this world. And it is, it is through his word that he still dwells with us today. He, he gave us the Bible so that we can set our minds on things above. And I have to remind you that though doing that individually is a wonderful thing, 
And I would highly encourage you to be doing that individually, to take advantage of the privilege that we have that most people in the history of the church have not had, which is to have printed Bibles in our language and to be literate and able to read it. Take advantage of that. Be in God's word every day. Don't let other worldly things distract you when you get up in the morning. You need to feast on his word. Feed on him. Let him teach you. Learn from him. Let him nourish your soul. But don't just do this as an individual, friends. We need need to do this or together. We need to do this as a church together. That's the call of all the Christian life. We cannot individualize in an American, Western sort of way of thinking our faith. We learn God's word. We meditate on God's word together. And friends, you know that the world that we live in is hostile to, to the truth of God. And you know that demonic powers are always seeking to influence us to not hear and believe the word of God and to keep our focus in the right place. And especially in our ever-increasing secular culture, the standards of how the world is going to tell you to use your time will be at odds with how God tells you that you should use your time. And so we got to reject those earthly, worldly ways of thinking together, church. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't enjoy God's creation with thanksgiving. Okay, this doesn't mean that we're supposed to be so heavenly-minded that we're of no earthly good. Okay, which, of course, I think the truth is we all know that most people in our world today are so earthly-minded they're of no heavenly good. I think that's the main problem that we have to focus on in our day and age. But I'm not saying that we can't enjoy and receive the things of God's creation with thanksgiving. We should do that. We can do that. But it simply means that we don't anchor our hearts and the things that we love most deeply in things that are passing away. Okay, it is a frequent mantra in the Scoggin home when something breaks, it's just gonna burn up when Jesus comes back anyway. There's no reason to get flustered about things in this world that are passing away. We as Christians know our home is in heaven and we can be sure of that. Did you hear what I just said? You can be sure that your home is in heaven and you're going there. So store up your treasure there. And that leads to our final truth. Fourth and finally, the surety of the Christian mindset. The surety of the Christian mindset. Look with me at verses three and four here. Paul says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Ooh, just gets better, doesn't it? Paul turns again to remind the church that they have died spiritually to the captivating lies of the world and the spiritual powers that are behind those lies of the world. They've died to that stuff. They've died to it. And remember... The primary mistake of the false teachers is to claim that truly spiritual people do certain required laws in order to gain spiritual fulfillment. Okay, they're actually teaching that you have to obey certain rules to be considered worthy enough to enter into the heavenly temple through the vision which angels escort you into that temple. And they're saying that truly spiritual people have these kinds of experiences. It's fascinating, even in apocalyptic Judaism, which is very likely the source of the heresy that Paul is dealing with in Colossians, 
the Jews even parsed out different levels of heaven. And they said, if you are a really good person and do these different practices, you go to what they call the, the terrestrial level. And if you're even better than that, you go to what's called the celestial level of heaven. This is Judah, uh, Jewish apocalypticism, the, the kind of thing that Paul is dealing with here. So there was the spiritual haves and haves, have-nots. There were those that made it to a celestial sort of a vision and those who only made it to terrestrial. And what made the difference is whether or not you were being a good Jew, whether or not you're doing the works of the Old Testament law. And Paul reminds them here, "Uh uh-uh, church. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. And this is a beautiful truth. See, for the Christian, there is no need to do, do, do in order to enter the assurance of salvation or exaltation for that matter. Our life is already, already hidden with Christ in God. And that means that your eternal life, if you're in Christ through faith, the Christ that is proclaimed in the scriptures, if you're in him through faith, holding on to him, your eternal life is secure. The word hidden there is implying security. And I think Paul still has temple imagery in mind here. You know, the false teachers are saying that we need to obey laws in order to be temple worthy. And being temple worthy is what gives us satisfaction and joy in life. Paul is saying that our lives are hidden in Christ who is the true temple. He is the true dwelling place of God. All that you need is in him. Because we are in Christ, you're already dwelling in the temple if you're in him through faith. And in a Jewish mindset, the temple is the place where the abundance of life dwells. You want to know the abundance of God's presence, his life? You'll find it in the temple. That's the significance of Jesus calling himself the true temple of God. But not only that, the temple is the safest place in all of the Jewish land that a person could be. This is amazing. Do you remember in our study of Ezra and Nehemiah, for those of you who were with us when we studied Ezra and Nehemiah just before Colossians, the entire focus of Ezra and Nehemiah was on a people being called by God to go back into Israel and rebuild the temple of God. And the reason they were called to rebuild the temple and to make that their priority was because the temple was where God's special life-giving presence dwelled. And so all the focus in those books is on the temple. And because of the importance of the temple, the Jews placed the temple in Jerusalem in the most secure, highest point in the entire city. They built up the security. They guarded the temple with more diligence than any other part in all of Israel. And so they, as we learned, placed all their gold, all their treasures, all of the riches which Cyrus poured out on them in an unspeakable manner. They put all of that stuff in the temple because that communicated both the glory of God's presence in the world, but it also was because the temple was simply the most secure place in all of Israel. And that was always the case. The temple's where you go for safety. When the enemies are surrounding you, you go to the temple. Even in David's day, listen to what David says in Psalm 27, verses 3 to 5. He says, Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. 
for he will hide me in his shelter. In the day of trouble, he will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. So friend, I ask you, what does Paul mean when he says, your life is hidden with Christ in God? It means that your salvation is secure in Christ and it couldn't be in a more secure place. False teachers, friends, prey upon people's fears. They come to people and they try to make them afraid. You might not be good enough. That's what they'll tell you. You got to do X, Y, Z. You got to do all the things that I'm telling you to do if you want to have that thing which your heart so desperately longs for. This is the way of false teachers. Follow these rituals. Be obedient to these things. Stay in our system. You, you've got to do all these things in addition to Christ if you want to have any hope of getting what you want in the next life. That's what they tell you. Friends, the true gospel would just say, if your faith is in Christ, if you are in him and he is in you, your salvation is more secure than you could ever make it yourself. Your salvation is safe. You're hidden with him in God. Now, I know that this is, I'm just dealing with the text. And I know that a lot of this, if we have any guests with us today who are from an LDS background, are probably just like, he's making all this stuff up. I'm really not making this stuff up. This really is the stuff that Paul is dealing with in the book of Colossians. But I do just want to ask you to consider your faith. Because one of your leaders just a couple of weeks ago in Salt Lake City, said this. Your choices today will determine three things. Where you will live throughout all eternity, the kind of body with which you will be resurrected, and those with whom you will live forever. And so the encouragement is think celestial. And, and I, I just want you to consider, is that not exactly the, the sort of false, dangerous teaching that Paul is calling out here? Just think about that. I'm going to challenge you to meditate on that. Because what Paul is saying here is that if you're in Christ by faith, your salvation is hidden in the most secure place imaginable. You're secure in Christ himself. And in Christ, we trust what he said when he uttered these words in John 10, 27 and 28. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. Jesus says, they follow me. I give them eternal life. They don't earn it. It's a free gift. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So you see, friends, the true Christian understands that we are hidden in Christ. We're hidden in him. And no one can tell us otherwise. We have assurance of salvation, not on the basis of our works, but on the basis of Christ's work in us. Christ's work for us, even more importantly, and his power to keep us. That's why Paul finishes this paragraph by writing in verse 4. He says, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Okay, friends, this is a statement of fact for all who have been spiritually resurrected in Christ. It says, we will, we will. We will most certainly, not on the basis of whether or not we've done good in this life, we will most certainly appear with him in glory. It's a guarantee. 
And it's a guarantee because we have life in him. In fact, as Paul puts it here, Christ is our very life. This is a Christian mindset. The Christian has been so radically changed by the power of God through the gospel that we heard and believed, which is that we were hopeless sinners in a rebellion against God until God stepped into our hopeless situation and rescued us. He sent his one and only son to do all the work that was required for righteousness and to suffer and die as a ransom for our sins so that through faith in Christ we are forgiven of all of our sins, we're counted righteous before God now and forevermore. And not only that, Jesus resurrected from the dead so that we resurrect from the dead and have new life and an eternal hope in him. We have been so radically changed by belief in that news that we no longer even consider our life as belonging to ourselves at all. See, that's what the way of the world tries to tell us. Set your mind on yourself. Set your mind on your flesh. Set your mind on the things that you want, the things you long for, the things you hope for, for all eternity. But the gospel says something different. It says, no, every knee shall bow at Jesus' feet and worship him as Lord and Savior of all. The Christian comes to see Christ is my life. He is my hope. He is my joy. He is my peace. He is my comfort. He is my safety. He is my guarantee of salvation. He is my guarantee of final resurrection. We don't depend upon our own merit to determine our status in the next life. We know that when Christ appears, we will appear with him in glory. That is amazing hope for you this morning, friends. It's not on you. It's on Christ. He did it. It's done. Trust. Trust him. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not a due to the Christian life, friends. Okay, we're going to see Paul apply the effect that this gospel truth has on us as we work through the texts in the coming weeks. He's going to show us that the gospel changes us. We're resurrected. And it, it, it touches every area of our lives. That's the amazing thing we're going to see for the rest of Colossians. But that do cannot and must not ever become the means by which we believe we gain the presence of God forever. That's what Paul's trying to say. That's Paul's point. The do comes as a result of basking in the done. It comes as we remember what Christ has done. It's done. It's finished in him. He is our salvation. We are hidden in him. We have full assurance in him. We have total and complete safety from Satan, from sin, and from the enticements of the world in him. So the mind of the Christian, the Christian mindset, friends, is a mindset, I hope you see, that is totally enamored and enveloped with the glory of the risen Christ. He is our life. And we're hidden in him. Here in closing, the words of a precious hymn. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. 
Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. While I draw this fleeting breath, when my eyes shall close in death, when I soar to worlds unknown, see thee on thy judgment throne, rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for giving us a hiding place. We thank you, Lord, that in Christ our life, our eternal life is hidden, it's secure. Father, I pray that this would just be an immense comfort to all of your people this morning. To remember afresh this week that in all of our failings, in all of our shortcomings, you are a God who has sent Jesus to be our perfection for us. That Jesus would be honored and glorified and praised. Lord, I pray that even our hearts would be compelled just to sing the, the final song that we're about to sing with more gumption, with more zeal, knowing Jesus paid it all. He paid it all. Father, I do pray for anybody who is in this room who is not clinging to Christ, who's not hidden in Christ, who ought to be fearing what will happen after death. I pray, Lord, that they would come to know there's no need to fear if they just trust in Jesus. That they would be hidden in you, oh Jesus. I pray that you would cause resurrection life in their souls this very morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.